Okay, good morning. Uh, we're second week into a new series, Spirit Words, where we're looking at the book of Acts and the speeches that are recorded in it. Um, we think about the book of Acts, think about Luke giving us a description of some of the events and persons and communications that ended up birthing the early church, our knowledge of early Christianity would be greatly decreased if Luke had not written the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke's book of Acts is the second of a two-volume work that he produced, the first being the Gospel of Luke, and then it was followed up secondly by his volume, the Gospel of Acts, I mean, the Book of Acts, excuse me. One of the features of Acts, as I've said, is the number of speeches that are recorded. We have about a third of the text of Acts is taken up with speeches, and this is what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of months. The second speech is a speech Peter delivers to 120 followers, both men and women, including um, Mary, Jesus' mother. Apparently, um, Jesus' brothers are there, and we don't know about the sisters, but apparently what had happened that um, following the resurrection, their belief in Jesus, which was not, they didn't believe in him before his death, but then afterwards they came to be believers of his, and they are among the individuals that are included in this group to whom Peter uh, uh, speaks. Let me, um, we'll work our way through, beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Let's just see what happens here. In those days, it says in Acts 1, 15, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Peter convenes this meeting of 120, and we find him doing that throughout the book of, of Acts. He convenes this gathering to deal with some unfinished business that had been created by Judas abandoning his role as apostle by betraying Jesus. So this is the business that Peter has to conduct, and we're going to find is that Peter secures a substitute for Judas. Let me read beginning in verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord went in and out among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph 
called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Peter saw that there were prophecies concerning the one who would betray the Messiah. And there were, that was in Psalm. There was another Psalm which talked about another needing to be put in the place of the one who had abandoned this spot. Um, so the fulfillment of these scriptures became the reason that Peter stands up and addresses the assembly to be able to take care of this business. He begins by laying down the qualifications for Judas replacement. There has to be some very specific things that are true of the individual who will become an apostle. And as we hear about the qualifications, it helps us to understand the unique role of apostle. Um, what he ends up suggesting is this individual who is going to replace Judas has to be one who witnessed the entire ministry of Jesus from the time that he was baptized by John and went into the wilderness, and then through the time when he um, is raised from the dead and ascends and also appears in post-resurrection appearances, as we learned last week, for about 40 days, Jesus went in and out among them. And so with these requirements, we got a basic understanding of the role of apostle. They were eyewitnesses. They were there. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard Jesus' teaching, and they uh, also witnessed his resurrection and his post-resurrection and pre-ascension appearances. Uh, as such, the role of apostle was a unique, irreplaceable office. It's not something that can exist in another time because these individuals who would be designated apostles, they had to have been there in the first century. They had to have seen Jesus be baptized, heard his words. Uh, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church believing and being taught that there was an unbroken line of apostles that starts with Peter and that has oversaw who has governed the the Roman Catholic Church since that time. Um, the only problem with that is that the role of apostle was limited to the 12. You, you had to have been there to be an apostle. So an unbroken line of apostles, it's that's relative to Peter's understanding of what an apostle what he would have understood, there could be no one to replace him, because the person to replace him would have had to have been there. And there were a limited number, so there were a couple. There's one called Justice and one called Matthias. Um, 
in choosing Judas' replacement, uh, these two, they fit the bill. So what they did, they prayed. And the way they would have done it, they would have cast lots. You do, do this different ways. You might have seen that you have different size stick. Sometimes they did that and you pick the stick and the shortest one, the longest one. Another way they did things and, and what I saw is this probably would have been they took a stone or a piece of twig or bone or something like that and inscribed it with the name or the character of the person being chosen. So they would have put two in this bag and and one fell out or one was chosen out and that rock that was chosen or whatever it was that identified the specific person, then that person would have been selected. Um, and the, the one who was selected was Matthias. Um, in, the in, in the midst of this meeting, Luke gives us some added detail about Judas Iscariot. He puts an aside in. Let me read from verse 18. This is sandwiched into the text that I read. This is what Luke adds. With the reward he, Judas Iscariot, got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. We have a couple of different accounts of what happened to Judas Iscariot after he betrayed Jesus. He got some money. Matthew tells us that he threw the money into the place where the Pharisees wanted to give it to him. It ended up, apparently, that that money was used to buy a field. Um, different details. Matthew says Luke hanged himself. Here, Luke tells us he doesn't talk about hanging. It could have been that he hung and fell. We really don't know what the detail that Luke gives us is that somehow, whatever way, uh, that Judas fell headlong and that his guts burst open and that that's how he died. And he was um, in the place where he died and was buried was called the field of blood. So despite differences, the main emphasis are the same in the two accounts, the purchase of a field with Judas blood money, the grisly death of Judas, and the naming of the field, field of blood. Now, when we think about Judas, we considered him before, but let's do so again. We've all had spiritual guides, you know, looking back and some better than others, the apostles had Jesus Christ. They lived with him and heard him, walked among him for almost three years. Judas had been discipled by the best rabbi that has ever walked the earth. He couldn't have had a better one. The fact that Judas could resist Jesus' influence is startling when you think of it and somewhat unnerving. How could somebody who was face-to-face -face with Jesus for three years, fail to be changed enough by that experience to cause him to be responsive. How, how could this happen? Um, leaves us scratching our head 
and asking a question. What made Judas God-proof? This was God in human form teaching him. What made Judas God-proof? Um, as we find a couple of clues, in John 12, we learn something about Judas' character. Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And one of the things that it might have been is greed, that that's what made him God proof. And certainly this could have been part of the problem, because biblically, uh, money is extremely seductive. Money makes godlike promises. God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Money seems to make the same types of promises as well. We believe that money will never leave us if it, it will never forsake us. If we have enough money in an IRA or a retirement account, we'll always be cared for. Money has that type of bearing. And Jesus talks about you cannot love both God and money. And I think the reason why he puts God and money on the same level is that both of them make the same types of claims to provide and to protect. Uh, Judas obviously had a problem with money. Um, he helped himself to what was in the bag. In the, the, They paid him, and although he apparently had issues because he didn't he take the money, he threw it, but that's what enticed him on some level to betray Jesus. Um, he had a problem with money. Um, Certainly, uh, money is a seductive influence, but it doesn't apparently make people God-proof. Um, Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but apparently isn't impossible. It doesn't make somebody God-proof. Matthew was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was wealthy. He was a tax collector as well. These are individuals. They must at some point have been... Um, because if somebody was a tax collector, you were in it for the money. Uh, you were a Jew who collected taxes on behalf of Rome from fellow Jews, and you added a surtax to put into your pocket. So the only reason why you were a tax collector is it was a way to make a buck, and you didn't really care that it didn't endear you to your countrymen. But these individuals, they, they, Money mattered to them, but they were not. This money did not keep them from becoming a follower of Christ. Um, so what else is there? We've talked about this, but putting it out again, uh, Judas Iscariot, that name in Hebrew is Judas Ish Karioth. Ish is man. Karioth is the name of a city 
in Israel. Uh, Kerioth is a city about 10 miles away from Jerusalem. Um, Judas lived in the southern part of Israel. Israel was divided into two halves. The lower half was known as Judah. The northern half, the kingdom of Judah, the northern half, half was the kingdom of Israel. It was all Israel, but there was a southern part, Judah, northern part, Israel. Um, Judas was a Judean. He was from the southern part of Israel, where Jerusalem was. It was the place where the spiritually purebreds, the spiritual purebreds were. That's where Judas was from. He lived close to the capital in Jerusalem. The rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles were Galileans. We've seen this before. So if you look at the homes of the apostles on a map, you will find 11 of them in the north. And we'll learn about the north. And you only find one in the south. Judas Iscariot. He's the only one that lived in the south of Jerusalem. This becomes important because Isaiah prophesied that when God shone his light, there was a period of darkness, and Isaiah just, he prophesied that a light would shine, and that it would shine. Well, let me read you. It's in Isaiah 9, 1 to 2. Here's what it says. Nevertheless, Isaiah writes, and this is 700 years before Jesus came. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light had dawned. What Isaiah predicts, the individuals who would be illumined would not be from the south of Jerusalem, the south of Israel, excuse me. They would be from the north, from Galilee of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus was born. This is where the 11 apostles who were able to continue on and follow Jesus. This is where they were from. Judas is the one who was from the south. Why select Galileans? And that becomes the question. Apparently, and maybe this is why Jesus knew who, who would betray him. Not because Judas was money hungry, but because he was a Judean. And what Isaiah predicts, it is the Galileans to the north. Why, why Galileans? What about them? One thing about Galileans is they had no basis upon which to be spiritually arrogant. They weren't the spiritual A team. They were the spiritual B team. They, they lived far from the capital. Um, they were considered second rate spiritually by Judeans. Their history was not a pretty picture. Um, there were kings for both Judah and Israel. Judah had some good kings, four or five decent kings. Of the 19 kings who governed the northern kingdom, none of them were good. 
One of them was marginal. 18 were awful. And so the legacy of the individuals who led the Galileans, they had awful leadership. In that sense, they had no basis to be arrogant. They had been humbled by judgment and disaster, and they had been disciplined. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What happened to the Israelites in the north? They were conquered by Assyria and forced to intermarry with those of different cultures. They were forcibly desegregated. It seems like there's two things as we think about what is true, what characterizes those to and through whom God communicates himself. And it seems that there's two things. They have to be discipled, and they've also been disciplined. Discipline and discipleship. Discipleship is about learning. It's what Judas would have experienced. He was discipled by Jesus. And if discipleship had been enough, if it was enough to sit at the feet of a rabbi, Judas would have been okay, but he wasn't okay. There's got, there has to be discipleship, but then apparently there also has to be discipline, which is to experience things that cause you not to be able to be arrogant and consider yourself as better than all. Those to and through whom God reveals himself have been disciplined, humbled, and are not in the place where they speak for God with arrogance. Um, again, Judas had been discipled, but as a Judean, one of the spiritual upper crust, he didn't have the humility that would allow him to continue to walk with Jesus. And I think perhaps that is why um, he ends up falling. His money hungriness then wasn't the root of the problem. It was the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem was arrogance. He just hadn't been exposed to enough difficulty to allow him to be humbled. Um, again, those to and through whom God reveals himself have spent time getting to know God through his word. Also, if you look at their lives, They've experienced some difficulties, and why should I point this out? Um, if you experience difficulties, don't assume that that's because you've been disqualified. Actually, it's probably the very opposite. Those to and through whom God reveals himself have been through difficult things. They have not just been discipled. They've also experienced discipline so that they might well, what does it say? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me pray first. Father, uh, thank you for the record of words that your spirit proclaims through Peter and Paul and, and 
our opportunity to sit at their feet and listen. We've listened to Peter, heard Luke talk about Judas Iscariot, who forfeited his place, another was added. But we look at Judas and we think, boy, how could a guy like that? And, and apparently there's a couple of things that, that he certainly was devout. Maybe his arrogance was the thing that had not been disciplined or humbled out of him. We don't like to go through difficult things, but apparently those to and through whom your spirit speaks have experienced difficult things. They don't have the basis to be arrogant. At any rate, would you continue to teach us about those to and through whom you reveal yourself? Help us to become those people in Jesus' name. Amen.